going to Hebrews 9 today. Thanks for that. In the early 1990s, Pam made friends with someone you may know and recognize his name, Barry Bonds, when he was still a pirate and still relatively unknown. And then she became very close with Barry's wife's son. And because she was from Sweden, Barry asked Pam to teach her a couple things, like how to drive and what baseball is. <laughs> um, well, in 1993, Barry graciously invited us out to San Francisco, and I got to go into the locker room with him, and he said, he introduced me to the guys as uh, the 93 Giants as Sons Pastor. This is Sons Pastor. I don't think he wanted to be associated with necessarily a, a man of God. No, that's not true. He, he's a strong believer. And while I was kind of gawking around the locker room, I heard that there's a corridor that comes down to the locker room. I heard this voice of a man bellowing. And he, he just kept bellowing and hollering. And I actually thought, could that be? Because Barry has a father-in-law named Willie Mays. And the man came down to the corridor and he walked up to me and he said, do you know who I am? And I said, yes, I do. You're Willie Mays. Now, up until this day, I wish I had said, yeah, you're Willie Stargell. But that wouldn't have been... <laughs> that wouldn't have been... Uh, I, it's one of those lines you wish you had. But I thought about how embarrassing it would be if I didn't know who he was, that he's, he would appear suddenly and ask me if I knew who he was. And I said, I don't know. What if I had never appreciated baseball, appreciated his stellar career, one of the best ball players of all time? And what if I hadn't? gotten to know anything about him, and then all of a sudden I saw him. Well, this past Tuesday, someone of far greater reputation, far greater fame, far greater glory, came down the corridors of heaven to greet my friend Keith Smith. And Keith knew who he was. Because since 1984, he sat right here in this front row. So when the Lord came down that corridor and said, do you know who I am? Keith said, yes, I do. I'm not going to ask you to forgive me for this because that's how I feel today. Keith's family is very well represented here today in the front row. We reserve this row for you guys. And beyond being a husband and father, brother, 
grandfather, great-grandfather, a genuine patriarch and friend. He was a servant of Christ and a friend of God and of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Married to his wife, Belinda, Melinda, since November 24th, 1979, almost as long as I've been here. And Melinda, you guys had a wonderful marriage, and you were what we call the corporate witness to all the angels and all, all of us, for sure. It's good to see you guys. It's strange how, as a pastor, you get to know people in a way that you, you, we greet each other, we greet each other in the hall, we greet each other at social occasions, but there's, there's a way of knowing someone when you see their eyes and, and you see the reflection of their hearts under the ministry of the Word of God, when you see their receptivity to the Word of Truth, when you see them looking as into a glass at the glory of the Lord week after week, week after week, message after message, message after message, and that's when I began to realize that Hebrews 11, that we're going to be studying in great detail down the road, <clears throat> is still being written. It's still being written about heroes of faith on the level of our time. And when I greeted Keith on Tuesday, I said to him, how you doing, faith hero? Because I, that was exactly what I believe about him. You see, by faith, so-and-so did such and such a thing. By faith, Moses. By faith, Samson. By faith, Deborah. By faith, Rahab. By faith, Keith. And the first thing I thought of, looking down here at you guys, the first thing I thought of about Keith is by faith he shepherded his family into the green pastures of the word of God. He shepherded his family on the way out. And I'm so glad I got to see him Tuesday on the way out. The Holy Spirit said to me that tell Keith he's going to be personally greeted by the great shepherd of the sheep. I didn't know that two hours later after leaving that he would be greeted by him. And when I asked Mindy what his favorite verse was, she said the shepherd's psalm. By faith, Keith lived by faith. By faith, he shepherded his family. Not just, not just when himself, but he shepherded his family, made sure they were led beside the still waters of the Holy Spirit, led into the green pastures of the word. Since we're speaking of green pastures, I have to remind you that he took his last ride in the Bad Apple, which is a red car, a very red car. He loved cars and collected cars, and there was one 1972 Buick Skylark called the Bad Apple, and that's where he took his last ride on this earth. But you better believe he's riding in the movable chariot in heaven, riding the heavens, and... As I told you, Jamie, he's never going to get pulled over. 
He may have one or two times on this side. We just want to give all our love to you guys today, all of Tetelestai Phalanx. And I'm looking forward to being way back, many rows back, when he's in the front row to receive the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, and whatever other crowns God has to give him. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to verse 5, actually. Incidentally, I'd like you to say hello to my little friend. Bob Friedrich is here today. He is, I haven't seen him for a few years, so welcome our, our little friend over here. I saw him this morning and said, hi, Bob. How did I miss you? So give him a warm welcome. He's... The rumors aren't true about you backsliding, Bob. But we, I knew you were with us all along. There are two times in Hebrews where the writer breaks off from his subject. And both of those times, incidentally, happen to be at points of insight that we have recently received in our local assembly by the grace of God, one having to do with the AD 70 trajectory that so much of what was predicted in the scriptures that people fearfully look forward to in our future have occurred already in the destruction of Jerusalem, so apocalyptically manifested in Revelation. And the second one, more significantly, is the universally saving significance of our Lord Jesus Christ and the universal impact of his cross. And both times when the writer of the Hebrews breaks off and has to in order to continue because he's basically saying, I can't go on because there's so much to say about this, happened at the time right when we received our insights. They have to do with our insights. Once in Hebrews 11.32, in that catalog that's still being written of the faith heroes, still being written on the level of our time. After the approving testimony of Rahab, the writer says, and what more can I say? What more can I say? The other time is our passage where we find ourselves in our verse-by-verse -verse study in Hebrews 9.5, when after speaking of the winged living beings called the cherubim of glory, above the ark of the testimony, overshadowing the place of expiation, the mercy seat it's called, but it's called the place of expiation. The writer says, about which things it is not necessary to speak of in detail right now even though the place of expiation, a good translation for that, the mercy seat, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, is in fact what he speaks about for the rest of this chapter, the place of expiation. In both cases, the teaching shepherd broke off right at the place which is most significant in what he's been talking about. The testimony of Rahab, 
is most significant of all those testimonies for one reason with regard to the Hebrews. It's where the edge of the word of God is sharpest because Rahab speaks most significantly of the A.D. 70 trajectory in Hebrews in the warning of what was just ahead to the readers of Hebrews. Rahab's faith and the action she took in faith resulted in her deliverance and that of her whole family in the, demonst- in the destruction of Jericho. She was delivered and her family from the destruction of Jericho. And what more can I say, the writer says, because he's saying, in essence, you, the readers, will escape the destruction coming up of Jerusalem by faith. Apostate Jerusalem, with its outmoded system of animal sacrifices, had become the new Jericho, so to speak, And the faith of the readers of Hebrews in the once and for all and final sacrifice of Jesus Christ was the faith that would deliver them from the imminent destruction of Jerusalem, which had symbolically become Jericho. Its walls were ready to tumble. As it had also become Sodom and Egypt in Revelation's metaphorical language. For in Sodom and Egypt the writer said, is where they crucified the Lord of the two witnesses. Sodom and Egypt wasn't it geographically, it was symbolically what what Jerusalem had become. Sodom, Egypt, Babylon, Jericho. So what more can I say, he said. The Lord was crucified in Jerusalem were just outside her gates, and not in Sodom or Egypt, geographically or literally. And we've spoken before how Rahab, the prostitute, and that's what she is, hey, porne, that's what she was, porne, the prostitute. It's interesting that the greatest climactic testimony in Hebrews is that of the porn queen of Jericho. was delivered from the destruction of Jericho and then took her place outside the camp of Israel, if you read read Joshua 6. Consequently, there is a further Rahab connection in the climactic exhortation of Hebrews that the readers go outside the camp, as we are called to go outside the camp and bear the reproach of Christ. Bearing the reproach of Christ is far better than bearing the historical judgment on Jerusalem, bearing the reproach of Christ is a far greater wealth than you can ever have in this age. Whether it's fame, whether it's human glory, whether it's wealth or riches, Moses considered the reproach of Christ, the reproach of identifying with God's people, greater riches than he had in Egypt, and he had all the wealth of Egypt. Rahab's transformation from the porn queen of Jericho to the climactic faith hero in Hebrews is a sign of the transformation of evil into the supreme good by the just and mysterious law of the cross. 
Rahab is not celebrated in the Bible because she was a prostitute, but because she had acted in faith, the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of the unseen reality of Jesus Christ, the God of Israel. She ultimately married into Israel and was, of course, no longer a prostitute. Her whole story seethes with the irony that we un- because we understand that in Revelation's apocalypse and in the satiric artistry of John, Jerusalem, under the old system, had become the unrepentant prostitute. But in our slow but sure verse-by-verse progress through Hebrews, we're in Hebrews 9, where the writer breaks off also signals a very significant truth. In fact, the most significant truth in all the Bible. For he broke off right at the phrase, the mercy seat, ta hilasterion, which you'll see in Greek in print. It's also found in Romans 3.25. It's related to the word hilasmos, meaning propitiation or the removal of wrath in 1 John 2.2. Jesus Christ the righteous is the propitiation for our sins, the removal of divine wrath against sin because he became sin for us that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. There is the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Many people have suffered in history, and it's argued, and I think argued forcefully, that some men have suffered more than Jesus physically on, in, on given day, on the given day of his physical sufferings. Some men have suffered more than he did physically. But his suffering was not the suffering of a man, but of a divine man. His suffering was an incomprehensible suffering of a man who is also divine. We cannot comprehend the level of infinity of the suffering that he endured beyond the physical suffering. The death that he endured on the cross was not the death that all men and all women endure barring his coming to change us. But it was an incomprehensible eternal death where we were all headed without grace, without the free grace of God, without the gift of God's Son. The incomprehensible eternal death that he endured in the cross. So there's nothing comparable there making all the more glorious and all the more universally powerful and saving his resurrection from the dead. The place of expiation. Expiation has to do with the removal of sin per se, sin itself, not just sins. Sin itself with all sins. Having made purification for sins, that's all sins of all people of all time in all places. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. That's what Hebrews 1.3 says right in the 
beginning, right at the outset, right in that exordium, right in the introduction. Propitiation is also an instructive term for the act of the archpriest, as Hebrews 2.17 says. Propitiation is, in essence, the removal of God's wrath against sin. Jesus exposed himself to this burning wrath, and it is burning wrath. And he endured its full and final blast for us in becoming sin for us in becoming the reality of the whole burnt offering. The whole burnt offering is what he fulfills in being totally consumed in the burning wrath of God against sin, but even more in the burning love of God for man. The Hebrews author chose to speak of the cherubim of glory whose wings overshadowed the mercy seat or the place of expiation in the earthly tent. It would be unwarranted and even dangerous a little bit to speculate about the nature and the praxis of the cherubim of glory, the cherubim of glory. But it's also important to note what we safely can say about these living beings who are symbolically depicted in the earthly tabernacle, which is said to be of this creation. In fact, I'm somewhat compelled to do so in the interest of presenting our commentary on Hebrews from a universalistic perspective. My friend Lynn Andrews, whom I saw recently, whom I admire greatly, said that there really has never been a commentary on Hebrews from a universalistic perspective. I don't know if she was throwing me a hint or not, but maybe. That is, from the perspective of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally saving impact of his cross, his death far from God for us and for all of creation. The cherubim, in fact, are archetypes of all of creation. When they're depicted elsewhere, they're said to be ever-living beings with four faces, the face of a lion, of an ox, of an eagle, and of a man. Therefore, they are representative, living archetypes of all of creaturely creation. Domesticated animal world, wild animal world, the birds of the air, mankind. So we can't just say, write them off as a so-called category of angels. They're more than that. Their function is that of protection. In Genesis 3.24, a flaming sword stands in the way of the tree of life, speaking of wrath against sin, burning wrath of God against sin, the flaming sword. But also, separate from that flaming sword were the cherubim. If you read it carefully, the cherubim speak of mercy. As cherubim of glory, they are guardians of mercy. They guard the way to the tree of life for, for man, not against man. God's wrath is against sin, but never against man or any creaturely creation for that matter. God executed his wrath against sin in his son as he also reconciled the world to himself in his son, thus speaking to us in these last days. In a son. 
The cherubim in Genesis 3.24 are associated with God's mercy, as they are here in Hebrews. And if ever there was a word that indicates the theme that God has riveted into my soul and nailed like a craftsman into the architecture of my thinking, it's the word mercy. Mercy. The cherubim are associated with the place where God showed mercy to all as symbolized in the cover over the Ark of the Covenant, called rightly the mercy seat, and symbolized in the cover of the Ark where blood was applied. Interpreted correctly as the symbolic place of expiation, the place where sin was removed. In Revelation, the four living beings in Revelation 4, 6 and 4, 8, 5, 6 and many other places in Revelation are cherubim. The number four in Revelation speaks of universality itself because of the four corners of the earth in Revelation 7, 1 and the seven spirits of God mentioned four times the seven spirits of God being the Holy Spirit portrayed as going into all the earth with the redemptive saving power of Jesus Christ. Speaking again symbolically. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. These four living beings represent all earthly creaturely reality, including mankind as the object of the expiating, redeeming, reconciling mercy of God in Christ. There is much that we cannot say about the cherubim without speaking wrongly about heavenly dignitaries. But we can say this, that the cherubim of glory attests to the glory of God's majesty, which is God's mercy. God's rich mercy, Ephesians 2, 4, the product of God's great love to all, in Romans eleven thirty two. Again, when God's majesty is spoken of, as I mentioned again last week, it's the glory of God's mercy, the majesty next to whom Jesus is seated in the right hand, at the right hand, is the mercy of God in its maximum manifestation. Jesus at the right hand of the majesty of God is our merciful archpriest. Hebrews 2:17. Precisely because he's the eternal archpriest and the eternal sacrifice, the offering priest and the offered lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Look. There's the lamb of God. John the Immerser said when he saw Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. What do you say about him? If you had one thing to say, John, what do you say? He's the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Do you know who I am? Yes, I do, Lord. You're the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. The cherubim can't but attest to this mercy, this universal mercy. 
For God will show mercy to whom he will show to mercy. And Calvinists have quoted this, and I've had them quote it to me, and I'm sure you have too. God said in Exodus 33:19, recorded in Romans 9:15, "I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy." But then I always like to say, read the whole argument goes through chapter 11. Not a chapter that bankrupts you, but one that enriches you. Because in Romans 11:32, God willed to show mercy to all. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Oh, and I show mercy to all. I have showed mercy to all. It's right there in the mercy seat, the place of expiation, where Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the only righteous one, became sin for you. Where Jesus Christ, the righteous one, became in that place, became the place of propitiation, the removal of the wrath of God against sin. Expiation, the removal of sin. He shows mercy to all, all of humanity, all of created reality. He has shown mercy to all in the place of expiation as symbolically represented by the mercy seat in the earthly holy of holies of the tabernacle. Well, teaching shepherd as a greater, or let's say, as a lesser shepherd than you, I'd have to say, maybe you broke off there, but it seems like you're speaking about the place of expiation for the rest of the epistle. And I think that would be affirmed. For this reason, salvation, justification, redemption, reconciliation, or any other facet or aspect of personal salvation is not, as Romans 9.16 says, not dependent on the one running or on the one willing but on God who shows mercy remember Lou's message and his depiction of that iconic painting God has Adam and Eve by the wrists their will wasn't involved in redemption. Yours wasn't either. By his own will, he begot us again. By his own will, he caused our birth. Which of you caused your own birth? Which of you caused your new birth? Well, you could say, I did, because I believe. That's not what caused your new birth. God caused your new birth. And then as a birthday present, he gave you faith after the fact. Even regeneration is the result of God's will and not ours. For the scripture plainly states that the father of lights, the giver of every good and perfect gift, has according to his own will given us birth by the word of truth that we may be a kind of first fruits of a universal creation. James 1, 17 to 18. And in Titus 3, 5, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done. So let me reward you with regeneration or new birth. No. But according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, 
I love those two as they come together. According to his will, according to his mercy, according to his will, according to his mercy. His will, universally saving, connects with his mercy, and he gives this saving mercy to all because of the place of expiation. What a place to break off for the teaching shepherd. We have the AD 70 insight in Rahab. We have the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ in the place of expiation. What is the place of expiation? The place is a person. The person is Jesus. He is the reality of salvation, the reality of our reconciliation to God, the reality of wisdom for us, holiness for us, righteousness for us, redemption for us. The place of expiation is a person. It took place in his person. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who offered himself without spot to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 9.14, we're getting there. Sometimes I'm doing an exegesis of the passage under consideration, but you don't even know it. It's like you're under anesthesia. It's being done to you painlessly. (laughs) Picture the cherubim of glory. They're bowing to this reality. Their wings overshadow, but there's something about that overshadowing. It's not to throw a shadow over, but to protect the reality of that truth. And that's our job. That's my job. I consider myself part of the secret service over this message to protect it from obfuscation, from distortion. So the cherubim of glory bow to this reality with a capital R, this reality that is Jesus. Jesus is the place of expiation. He is the mercy seat. His person is the place. Jesus is the place and the person of expiation, of the removal of sin of the world. To see him is to see the removal of sin in the world and to see the scars of battle in him which were afflicted upon him in that transaction. He comes down the corridor of heaven to meet you and says, do you know who I am? Maybe you'll detect the nail print here. Maybe he'll even throw his shirt open a little bit and say, do you know who I am? And I know everybody here is going to say, yes, sir, I do. I know something about your career. I know about that great catch you made, especially when you intercepted my sins. That was awesome. Sorry, Willie, but Jesus is incomparably greater than you, and the catch he made incomparably greater than yours. The expiation of sin happened once and for all and forever in his person. Jesus is the universally saving significance of God. 
The mercy that God shows to all, that God has in fact and reality given to all, is saving mercy. You cannot separate mercy from salvation. It's eternal, life-giving mercy. And he's given it to all of humanity, to all of creation, represented in the cherubim of glory. Called the cherubim of glory precisely because they depict the glorified creation. They predict the glorified creation, glorified in the majesty of God's mercy. Precisely because God has shown mercy in his merciful archpriest who has made propitiation for our sins and the sins of the whole world and who even now intercedes in this time between the great alterations. He intercedes for us. Why? To help us, to support us, to sustain us. For we are called to suffer as well as believe, and we have that privilege in Philippians 1.29, to suffer as well as to believe. So he intercedes for us. He not only intercedes for us as a faithful archpriest, he suffers with us in all our suffering. As our merciful archpriest. He's our helper. And he sustains us in this evil age because we are between a rock and a hard place, really. We are between the two great alterations. We are between the clash of two ages and aeons, and we have to pray ourselves. Lead us not into temptation is a very wrong interpretation of the Lord's Prayer. It actually should read, don't let us crack under the pressure. The pressures that brought to bear in this conflict of the eons. Don't let us give in to the pull of the cosmos, of the evil age, and be brought into conformity with it. Don't let it happen, Lord. And he's interceding to the Father that it won't. I pray for my grandsons every day, my grandchildren every day. that they'll be guarded from the cosmos, protected from the evil one, that they will grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with men, mostly in favor with God, but also in favor with men, mostly in wisdom, but also in stature. Every day. The angels, along with these cherubim, all the angels of God worship him, says Psalm 96.7, quoted in Hebrews 1.6. Don't worry, I'll be breaking off soon too. Jesus Christ, whom the cherubim worship in constant, enthralled adoration, is the place of expiation in person. You see... They don't look at their phone with adoration and excitement and focus so much so they don't recognize you in the room or that you're even there or have ever lived. They focus on the mercy seat and they're always enthralled. They're always animated. They're always 
in adoration of whom they see. And they praise him, holy, 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 Lord God of the armies, day and night. And it's never old. It's always fresh. They're always in, in complete, fascinated, animated attentiveness in this angelic academy. They're always looking at the salvation that has come to you, which is in person in Jesus Christ, in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Now, as we move to a close, that the wings of these cherubim overshadow the place of expiation is not an act of obscuring that place, but of protecting it, as it were. From any attempts at obfuscation, distortion, diminution, or delimitation, the depiction is an indication of the praxis or the practice and Lou defined that term very well the praxis of worship by the cherubim for in the book of revelation the four living beings fell down and adored God who sits upon the throne saying amen hallelujah which means praise Yah which is a shortened form of Yahweh hallelujah praise Yahweh. Who are they praising when they praise Yahweh? God and the Lamb in one throne. The God who sits upon the throne is enthroned there along with the Lamb. It's the throne of God and the Lamb. The Father of mercies, God who manifests saving mercy to all, along with the merciful and faithful archpriest who has made propitiation for the sins of the world, but also the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world by becoming sin for us, that we the world would be made the righteousness of God in him. The wings of these living creatures, like the wings of the angels, represent their instantaneity, their instantness, there is no time between a hearing of God's command and the doing of God's command. The angels do not have free will as we understand free will. Their freedom of will is the freedom to do the will of God and never the freedom not to do it. So when we hear about so-called evil angels, we're hearing about beings that are not, beings that are part of something called nothingness. For evil is nothingness, destined to be not. It's something, and it's something against which we combat, but it's destined to be not. The angels do not have freedom not to do the will of God, but only freedom to do it. And you know what? That's really human freedom. Human freedom is the power to do good. Human freedom is not the freedom not to do the will of God. Our freedom is freedom to do it in the power and grace of God. Because freedom is depicted to people or understood to people as the freedom not to do the will of God, that's why we are in the state we are in, in this so-called free country, which is losing its human freedom every hour. It's running out like sands in an hourglass. 
So it's only the people who have the freedom to do the will of God and the power to do it and that do it who will be God's leverage to pull the historical decline that we're in right now up and make a historical renaissance in which millions, in fact billions, will be saved. So, bless the Lord. Psalm 103.20, and I'll close with this almost. <laughs> Psalm 103.20 to 21. Remember, Hebrews, the whole thing is one sermon. So next time you complain that the preacher's too long-winded, then think about sitting under that homily, Hebrews. It only takes about 45 minutes to 50 minutes to read it straight through because it's a sermon. But it's taken me over three years to begin to tap into its meaning. Its meaning is the reality of the place of expiation who is a person. Psalm 103.20 is significant because it says, Bless the Lord, all his angels, powerful in strength, who obey his bidding to obey the voice of his words. Bless the Lord, all his powerful armed forces, his ministers doing his will. His ministers doing his will. I'll say this again because it's, a, it's the forefront of an angelology of scripture. The freedom of the angels is their freedom to do God's will, not freedom not to. Angelic volition, not like human volition, is always directed to do God's will and to do it instantaneously upon hearing the voice of his command. There is no moment of time between their detecting God's command of his voice and their doing of it. Read, read Isaiah 6 sometime about the seraphim. So quick you couldn't even measure the time or distance when they went to the ark and pulled off a a piece of burning coal and put it on the lips of Isaiah because Isaiah, like me, is a man of unclean lips, living in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And he has to purify our speech if we're going to represent his son, if we're going to speak for Jesus Christ, if we're going to be a witness of his in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's where we are. That angels would ever not do the will of God is an unthinkable thought and an impossible possibility. Jesus treated them like nothingness because they are nothingness. If such angels exist, they must subsist in the realm of nothingness, in the realm of what is not, along with evil itself, which is merely deprivation, the absence of good and therefore the absence of being. Much more will be said on this. That's just a suggestion. So what is this place of expi expiation? If not Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ in his universally reconciling, redeeming, expiating, atoning significance. Is this depiction, let me put it this way, is not this depiction... Another example of the determination of the writer, like Paul, to communicate nothing that is detached 
or that in any way distracts from Jesus Christ and him crucified. For the love of Christ controls us, having judged this, since one died in inclusive representation of all, then all died. And he died in inclusive representation of all, so that those who would live would no longer live themselves, but he who died in representation of them and raised will live in them. I want to say one thing I read in my absence from you, and I read a lot, came from a guy who was doing a study of Karl Barth. And he talked about the one requirement of God on mankind. One. There's only one requirement God has of you and I. And I'm paraphrasing it, and I want to teach on this again and again, but it is to recognize that we are those in behalf of whom God required the uttermost of himself. God does not require the uttermost from us. Listen carefully. That's me talking. He does not require the uttermost from us before he requires us to recognize that we are those in behalf of whom God required the uttermost of himself. God loved the world so much that he required from himself that he would become the sin that separated men from him. God loved the world of mankind, all human beings in all places and times, so much that he required of himself the utmost price, the giving of his son and the Son, the giving of himself. As I come to the end of my ministry, I want to know one thing. And I certainly don't take myself seriously, but I take this message with all the possible seriousness you could muster. I hope that I've conveyed this, that God only requires of us that we recognize that we are those in behalf of whom God required the utmost of himself. That is, required the giving of himself in his son, in the giving of his son on our behalf. So this gives entire meaning to verses I became familiar with very early in my Christian living. He has told you, man, what is good? And what is the Lord requires of you? What he requires of you, only to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. But how can we act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly before our God unless we live as those in whose behalf God required the uttermost of himself? To act justly means to show mercy because we recognize and realize the great mercy shown to us. To love faithfulness is first to love the faithfulness of the Son of God by which we were justified. 
and because of which and in which we live. To walk humbly before our God is precisely to recognize that we are those in behalf of whom God required the uttermost of himself. That is, required the giving of himself and his son in the giving of his son in our behalf. This also completes the meaning of Hosea 6.6, where God says, I desire mercy and not a sacrifice, meaning a ritual offering, and the knowledge of God rather than the holocausts or whole burnt offerings ritually offered. You're beginning to know God if you see him in Jesus as he who made himself responsible for the consequences of your sin and mine. You will know him. You begin to know God and to know mercy when you recognize that you and I are those in behalf of whom God required the uttermost of himself. He looked down upon our sinfulness, our iniquity, He saw that all had gone astray. There's none that does good, none that does righteous. They all follow after their own lusts. There's not one. And so what did God say? We've got to judge them. We've got to do away with them. We've got to discard them. No, God says, you know what we need to do? We need to make ourselves totally responsible for their redemption. We need to make ourselves totally responsible to endure the judgment that they deserve. We've got to require not something from them, for they could never pay. They could never equal what we would require. We can only require it of ourselves for them. When you see Jesus, you're going to see him that way. The one who demanded the uttermost of himself for you. That's mercy. (laughs) I'm with the cherubim. I will overshadow that mercy seat. And I'll make sure that no one limits it, that no one disdains it, that no one distorts it. Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity. As Brian prayed earlier, we pray that you will extend your mercy in practical ways. Especially upon the precious Smith family here with us. You'll demonstrate yourself as the father of mercies. That you'll demonstrate yourself to be the God of all comfort. That you yourself and your son Jesus Christ will be present to minister a comfort, a consolation, a recollection, and an anticipation of of a great reunion. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Father, help us to focus like the cherubim on the mercy seat and help us to see that the place of expiation is a person, our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Vicki.